It is Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the largest lizard native to Arkansas. And a lot of times, if you remove a predator from that community, that is going to have one of the most drastic effects on the rest of the community. Plus, the impact of talk radio. And, and so a company like Salem... You know, is not a journalistic entity. They are an entertainment entity. They also very, very seldom have local hosts on their radio stations. And the effect of film and TV on us physiologically. Pop culture has a fundamental effect on people. Uh, it is scientifically measurable. It is uh, economically perceptible. It, you, you can see it in many different kinds of ways. First, the news from NPR. Fayetteville Public Television offers classes in video production, plus access to equipment and broadcast channels to share your videos with a viewing audience. Serving all residents of Washington and Benton County, Fayetteville Public Television can help people turn video ideas into reality. FAYpublic.tv for more information. Good Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large for January 2nd, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Ahead on the show today, accidentally getting to an end-of-the-line country store. We hear from Brooke Blevins about his book, Up South in the Ozarks. That's ahead on our show. First, though, a University of Arkansas biologist teamed up with the Little Rock Zoo, Arkansas Game and Fish, and others to captively breed 43 eastern collared lizards over the last two years. The homegrown reptiles received new homes in July of 2023, and Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis sat down with head lizard researcher Casey Brewster to learn more about this unique partnership and the creatures it supports. If you were to spot an eastern collared lizard while hiking through the Ozarks, you might think it scurried up here from Mexico's Chihuahuan Desert. The creatures are an exotic sight, a snapshot of the southwest. Their vibrant aquamarine bodies and long tails can grow to be over a foot long, making them the biggest lizard native to Arkansas. Many locals call the hefty reptiles mountain boomers, a name perfectly suited for their bold presence. The seemingly out-of-place mountain boomers piqued the interest of conservation genetics researcher Casey Brewster. He says, although they can seem larger than life, collared lizards maintain a fragile existence in the state due to an intrinsic connection to one of the region's most delicate ecosystems. For more than five years, he, along with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, the Forest Service, the Nature Conservancy, and the Arkansas Natural Heritage Commission, have worked together to restore the ecosystems that eastern collared lizards call home. So originally, I uh, so I I did my PhD on the eastern collared lizard. I mainly, really, what I did was I was interested in understanding the mechanisms that cause populations to decline in at-risk species. And the eastern collared lizard in Arkansas ended up being a really good model system for a handful of reasons. One, you know, we the populations are clearly declining. There, they've declined 
substantially in just the last you know 20, 30 years, but also because I knew where some populations were, and they're pretty discrete colonies. They'll they'll live in sort of a specific area, and so you can go back repeatedly and kind of have some consistency on on trying to ask and approach questions with them. So I was interested in understanding what was causing their population declines, and specifically more mechanistic. Um, really looking at details. We knew that a lot of it had to do with habitat loss. They're very specific on their habitats that they live in. Um, in this part of the country, they live in, you know, in Zurich, limestone prairies, outcrops, and in general, what we call glades. Uh, some folks call them cedar glades, but these would be open, rockier habitats, um, very little uh, canopy cover, um, primarily a lot of grasses primarily are dominant there, but not a lot of uh, woody vegetation. While an abundance of tree cover is not unusual today, historically the Arkansas hills housed several distinct landscapes. Savannas, open flats, and glades split the woodland canopy, fostering biodiversity among the flora and fauna below. However, agriculturally motivated fire suppression allowed the woody cover to take over. If it weren't for researchers like Brewster, specialized Ozarkan environments like glades might have disappeared entirely, erasing species essential to the food chain, like the eastern collared lizard. As it turns out, how ecosystems work, how that, that area of natural habitat works, is all of those organisms in that community have an important role. Some, you know, you could argue have a more important role than others, but they still have a really important role. And a lot of times, if you remove a predator from that community, that is going to have one of the most drastic effects on the rest of the community. And so that's essentially sort of a smaller scale because glades aren't massive, uh, you know, uh, areas, but still, you know, that that's sort of the same effect that you have as that predator being lost. Does that reduced proximity make the lizard's presence even more important? Yes, I would say that 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 absolutely does. So, you know, one thing, you know, that we that we run into is uh, whenever we're, you know, looking at restoring a glade habitat, you can do you can do everything. You can do the prescribed fire. You can remove the cedar trees, remove the invasive species. You can do some reseeding. You can do a lot of great stuff. But if you go out there and measure the diversity of the plants, arthropods, and other organisms that would usually be part of the community without the collared lizards, you're pretty much almost never going to get that diversity that you once had. Collared lizards aren't the only species that call glades home. Wild turkey and black bear, along with various insects, birds, and other reptiles, all rely on the specialized environment limestone glades provide. Various environmental organizations across the state are also invested in the future of Ozarkan glades. Brewster says he was able to capitalize on that joint interest and assemble a dynamic group of conservationists, creating the Eastern Collared Lizard Conservation Team. Brewster helms the team, which includes representatives from the Little Rock Zoo, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, University of Arkansas, University of Central Arkansas, and the Arkansas Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. Over the past year, the team focused on captively breeding lizards at the Little Rock Zoo. Zoo director Susan Altrui says the commitment of the researchers helped zookeepers breed over 40 eastern collared lizards ready for introduction back into their natural habitats. 
Well, one of the key ingredients in a successful breeding program is that long-term commitment. It's doing the research on the back end. It's finding where there's a problem. It's understanding what it takes to solve that problem and then figuring out who are the key individuals, individual organizations you need to solve that problem. Um, so a lot of the partner organizations that approached us had already done a lot of that work. And so when we were approached, we were approached as being a partner to help to solve a problem. Um, and so for us, uh, where we come in is to be that solution to the problem, to help to be that breeding organization that can provide individuals that can then be released out into the wild. And you see this happening with uh, a lot of accredited zoos across the country. Accredited zoos are very good at um, species survival plan programs where we are breeding individuals successfully for the long-term survival of those species. And so we've been approached by organizations um, such as game and fish organizations in states across the country, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, which is the national organization, uh, to partner with them on species reintroduction programs because of our success in captive breeding. Um, there's a lot of other um, uh, success that you can look to for these types of programs. The California condor is one example of that. Um, there wouldn't be a California condor anymore if it wasn't for the success of a lot of the zoos that are on the West Coast who uh, saw a problem and were able to successfully breed in captivity the California condor and then re-release it back into the wild. Much like the California condor, humans can unintentionally disrupt collared lizards' habitat, hindering the conservation team's efforts. To avoid trouble, Brewster keeps the new crop's whereabouts under tight wraps. However, he says that while their locations are top secret for now, his ultimate goal is to reintroduce populations to state parks like Mount Magazine so the public may enjoy mountain boomers under the supervision of park rangers. Brewster says Arkansans can still be involved in the species' immediate conservation. He says landowners across the region who think their property could be suitable collared lizard habitat can rehabilitate their property, and anyone lucky enough to see a lizard in the wild can help by taking a picture with their smartphone. If you are out, you're somebody that goes out on forest service or on, on, on public land areas and you identify a collared lizard using the iNaturalist app on your uh, smartphone, um, kind of takes you through it. Anybody that's used that would know. But that, that data can be really useful. That can help us. If you want to, you know, donate or, or uh, help fund the project, you know, there's absolutely tons of need for that. We're on a shoestring budget. And then also if you're a landowner that feels like your land may actually, you know, fall within a glade that, that maybe needs some, some, you know, nothing too crazy in terms of habitat restoration, you know, there's always possibilities with the private burn association that's out there in Arkansas and, and the Game of Fish private lands biologist and, you know, us trying to get grants or, you know, there are, there's, there's a few individuals out there that have done all this on their own with their own, uh, you know, hard-earned money and, and running chainsaw and doing the work themselves. For now, curious nature enthusiasts may visit two captive collared lizards at the Little Rock Zoo. Altrui says the zoo also has a replica glade habitat at the Conservation Learning Center so patrons can experience glade's beauty without harming the fragile ecosystems. For the rest of the summer, Brewster says he'll be cruising through the hills with his dog to check on the lizards and apply his findings to research in his lab. Though temperatures are rising, he says that's just what the lizards want, and if they're out, he's out. It's a long process, but the conservation team is committed to the future of the eastern collared lizards and the state. For Ozarks at Large, this is Jack Travis out of the Bruce and Ann Applegate Studio 2.
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Talk radio is very influential. I mean, clearly you're listening right now. Freelance reporter Katie Thornton took a deep dive into one conservative talk radio network in her five-part series, The Divided Dial. Katie partnered with WNYC's On the Media to discuss the history of conservative talk radio and the power that Salem Media Group has over the airwaves. I asked Katie in our interview back in 2023 about her own personal experience with radio. I absolutely love radio, and I have since I was a little kid. I remember sort of waking up on a Saturday morning when I was a kid and tuning into the University of Minnesota's like high school and junior high show. And I, I remember having a friend who was on that show, and I would wake up at 8 a.m., and I would hit the radio, and I would hear his voice and the voices of these other young people coming through my radio you know, at this distance, almost this sort of ghostly presence, and playing these songs up for me and sort of serving up this, this music that I had or hadn't heard before and just really sort of fell in love with the medium, the way that it could bring people together across vast distances, but also was so inherently local, you know, was so physically tied to to a place. And so I've, uh, you know, from from the time that I was really a, a preteen, I really loved to listen to the radio. And as I was a in my teenage years and as I went on into my 20s, I ended up volunteering and working at a lot of different radio stations and radio organizations. And so I've worked behind the scenes in radio for, for a lot of my life. Just really fell in love with the medium and in working behind the scenes, ended up getting a sort of unique glimpse into how individual stations, but also how the, how the field more broadly works. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I remember being in fifth grade and I was over at a friend's house and uh, he had a dual deck boombox. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he had a dual deck boombox and he had a little like a handheld microphone and we spent all night making a radio show and he still has that tape and I listened, oh, no to, way. It. I listened to it a couple years ago and it was one of those things where it's just like, oh my gosh, like I would have never in a million years dreamed at 10 that... 33-year-old Matthew would be literally working in radio. And so it's it's funny to see, you know, how something like that really sticks with you and reminds you that like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. And I actually kind of like it. That's kind of what it sounds like your experience was, too. Absolutely. That was my experience. And, you know, it seems like we might have had some similar experiences growing up. So I'm 30. I was born in 92. So I I sort of came of age in this post-1996 Telecommunications Act era. I grew up in in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I was really fortunate in that we had such a wide variety of radio stations on the airwaves that I could flip on the radio and hear the voices of young people. I could hear a lot of different languages. I could hear a variety of political perspectives and sports sports shows, chat shows, news reporting, religious programming, really just, it really ran the gamut. And so in a way, I think I was sort of spoiled growing up where I did because we had such a variety of radio stations and such a variety of perspectives on the radio dial. And that was sort of my understanding of what radio was. When I grew up a bit and traveled a little bit and, and um, you know, got, got outside of, of Minnesota or got outside of Minneapolis, 
I came to realize that a lot of people in the U.S. don't have the luxury of having this wide breadth of experiences and perspectives shared on their local airwaves. And that's one of the things that got me really interested in in reporting this series. In 2020, fall of 2020, I was driving through northern Minnesota, and there was only one FM signal that was strong enough for my car radio to pick up. And it was playing a, you know, a, a longstanding, sort of very conservative evangelical program. There's nothing wrong with that program being on the air, but to me, the fact that it was the only thing available just made me wonder how much choice people, a lot of people in this country, really have when it comes to listening to the radio. Yeah. Well, this this goes really well into your your series, The Divided Dial. What's the elevator pitch of the show, and why work with On the Media? For it? Oh, gosh. Okay. Elevator pitch. You would think that I could just, like, rattle this off. <laughs> um, the Divided Dial is a five-part podcast series about how the American right came to dominate talk radio and how one company is quietly launching a right-wing media empire from the airwaves. The company is called Salem Media Group. Um, They have about 100 frequencies across the country, but they syndicate to over 3,000 stations, and they build themselves as the country's largest conservative Christian multimedia network. They have this strong base, um, or I I, I won't go too into it. You asked for the elevator pitch, so I'll leave it there for now. (laughs) But in terms of working with On The Media, um, I'm a freelance reporter, and On The Media, I felt, would be really a perfect partner for this series. I think that they have a a lot of nuance in their reporting. They are quite literally a program that reports on media. So it was sort of an obvious kind of meta fit. But I also think with the depth of their reporting and the rigor of their reporting and and the nuance that they're willing to bring into it. And uh, that to me is not something that I see in in every in every show. Well, let's talk about the mechanics of of Salem Media then. So, you know, people who listen to KUAF are going to be familiar with NPR uh, and NPR has a, a model where, you know, stations all across the country uh, have programming from NPR, from the national level and from different stations. Uh, how does the how does a network like Salem Media differ from something like NPR's affiliate stations? Yeah, that is such a fantastic question, because there are certainly some similarities. As you mentioned, NPR has an affiliate model. There are some national programs. There are also a lot of local programs um, that you would get that I wouldn't be able to get in Minneapolis. Something that I think sets a, a network like Salem apart from something like National Public Radio is just the content, really. First and foremost is the content. National Public Radio is a journalistic entity. Entity. There is fact-checking. There's rigorous reporting. I mean, to put it into perspective, this series in total came in at about two and a half, you know, almost three hours between the five episodes. That took a lot, a lot, a lot of time. I began you know, kind of scheming up this series in the fall of 2020, really started reporting it in earnest in 2021, and it came out at the very end of 2022. All that for, you know, just just under three hours of content. There are hosts on Salem Radio Network who go on the radio for three hours every single day, and they have to fill that time with compelling, sort of engaging material. The way to, the way to keep people engaged for three hours every single day, both for your own energy level and your own sanity, but also for the, the mechanics and the finances of the company, is not to do hard-hitting journalism for three hours a day. That is just not feasible. And so Salem hosts will get on the radio and talk for three hours, and there isn't necessarily much journalistic integrity or effort behind that. And and in certain instances, they don't claim that there is either. And, and so a company like Salem, 
you know, is not a journalistic entity. They are an entertainment entity. They also very, very seldom have local hosts on their radio stations. Um, Some markets will get a weekday local anchor. That's sort of a special thing. Weekends will often have a lot of local voices, but they're not necessarily in the prime slots. They're on Sundays. And so there's not really an emphasis on growing local talent or really hearing local voices. What I think the national hosts do well somewhere like Salem is sort of pick up on some of the political, but more so cultural issues that may be relevant to some folks in different parts of the country and speak specifically to those. So it still can feel somewhat locally tailored and geared toward people all over the country, like in my case in Minneapolis, in your case in Arkansas, um, without actually being local. I think when folks think of conservative media, their gut reaction is to think of Fox News or to think of Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson. But I, I think you would argue that conservative talk radio is as influential, if not more influential. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would argue that it is at least as influential. Talk radio is still a very listened to medium. It's nearly neck and neck with social media for how people get their news, which I think a lot of people don't realize that radio is neck and neck with social media for how people get their news. And another thing that I think gives it so much power, in addition to being so popular, is that it really sort of evades scrutiny. It's very hard to parse. It's hard to document. You can't, you know, control F and search for keywords. It's not as clippable or shareable as a YouTube video. It's not captured in a tweet. You have to listen to hours and hours and hours of this stuff every day in order to really get a sense of what's going on. Also, there aren't necessarily transcripts. Not everything is is documented or, or shared online. And so it's this sort of medium that makes it really easy to share information that is false or, or that might be sort of... Um, half true. Half true, exactly. Or, or starting with a nugget of truth and then going on and saying, you know, this is something that's affecting you. This is a true experience. I have the sole solution. And even if that is that is uh, based in falsehoods or based in sort of wildly incorrect understanding of, of political operations, that's out there. And it just sort of goes into the ether and disappears. But people are hearing this all the time. Yeah. And it's really funny that you got here because my next question is, uh, one of the things that sticks out to me about talk radio is that it can be really difficult to fact check. It's there for a moment. It's gone the next. You know, there's there's not transcripts, as you talked about. It's very rarely recorded. What impact do you think the ephemeral nature of radio has on its message? Oh, I mean, it just makes it so easy to say pretty much whatever you want. And, you know, it it's here and it's gone. And it's also, not only does that open this window for sort of sharing uh you know, potentially falsehoods or these sort of half-truths or this, or misinformation, it also impacts people in a different way because it's very conversational. It's very approachable. I mean, you have, you have hours, potentially hours and hours of time every single day with a one host. I mean, that's more time than most of us spend with our best friends or even maybe some of our family members. You can get to know these hosts very, very well and start to feel as though, you know, you are just sort of having a conversation. And I think that that is not an experience that you get with television. Uh, maybe you know them well, but they're clearly not... You know, people on TV are not like, 
I would never see someone on TV as like one one of <laughs> one of us for for lack of a better term. You know, yeah, a peer or a colleague. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, certainly not a peer because they're on TV, they're glamorous, etc. You know, I had to do a TV appearance which was very strange and I like don't even know how straight up don't even know how to do my makeup so I was like well I don't know how to go on TV you know so <laughs> it's just that is that to me is a world apart but on radio it can really start to feel like your friend or your colleague or a family member and another thing that happens on radio the call-in model is like a super engaging uh, I will say oftentimes very fun model and what the call-in model does is it lets you hear from people who it lets you call in and engage if you want to otherwise it lets you hear from people who might just might be just like you and so it's this very sort of participatory medium not really unlike social media in some ways but you can feel represented in talk radio in a way that I don't think you can be somewhere like with something like Fox News at the end of the show you speak to the senior vice president of talk of Salem Media. What surprised you the most in your conversation with him? I I think what surprised me the most about my conversation with Phil Boyce in some ways was how much we had in common in a really sort of strange way. I think we we have uh, very different ideas of what type of... We do very different work. You know, I do journalistic work he shapes the voices and personalities of, of their talk radio hosts who are not journalists. We both love radio, and we both think that it's a very effective tool for communication. And so in that way, we sort of had a lot in common. And I think that that was one of the reasons why we were able to have um, what I think was a respectful conversation across some, across some pretty vast differences and, and in asking, you know, uh, have a respectful conversation even while I was asking probing questions about some of the misinformation and outright falsehoods that circulate on Salem stations, because we had this sort of shared love for radio in a sort of strange way. Another sort of major takeaway for me from the conversation with Phil Boyce, which by the time I spoke with him wasn't necessarily a surprise, but it did sort of drive home a lot of what I was learning about the company, was that this is not a company that is just chasing dollar signs. It's very much an ideological project from top to bottom. And I think that that ideological motivation ultimately can be stronger than greed. You know, as he said, he makes a good living, but he's also, in his words, you know, we're in it to save America. And so to me, hearing how much this executive in this company was was on board with the mission and did not back down from what his hosts said on the airwaves was very telling about the resolve and the strength of this company. And I think the lengths that they'll go to to get their message across. Um, they're not a company that's going to change their message if, if something else becomes a little bit more profitable. I mean, in their uh, 10Ks, in their public filings, because they are a publicly traded company, they say that they may sometimes pursue, they may sometimes not pursue a more profitable option if it goes against their mission of providing um, Christian conservative content. I also think it's important to note that their definition of Christian conservative content in this in this situation and in recent years in particular, um, but for for quite a while at this point, is is often quite far right and often often very laden with quite bigoted speech and in many instances outright falsehoods. Have you heard from any conservative folks who have listened to your your reporting? Have you heard any kind of feedback from people who aren't typically on the media listeners? Yeah, you know, I've seen I've seen some conversation, especially on Twitter, you know, from folks within 
the evangelical community and some folks who either currently listen to this programming or or have previously listened to this programming. A lot of folks who were sort of taken in by talk radio for quite a while. And the response has been really positive. In this series, I wanted to be sure that I, I got perspective and input from evangelical scholars and from evangelical folks, who people who had this experience of listening to this type of radio. I think that speaking with, with those folks gave me a sort of deeper understanding of, of what I was listening to and why people might listen to it. You know, one of the things that, that I have experienced as somebody who grew up in the Midwest, you know, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I was very fortunate growing up in Minneapolis because we had a wide variety of radio stations and perspectives and experiences that were being shared on the airwaves. But the experience of a lot of people in this country since the deregulation of the 80s and going on through the 96 Telecommunications Act and into the present is that local media, whether it's radio stations or newspapers, have been eroded and eroded, which means that there are less local voices reflected in their local media landscape. National media, I think if it's doing their job well, should be deferring to local journalists to understand what's going on in different parts of the country. And so I think that a lot of people do have, and and I see this as somebody who grew up in the Midwest, a lot of people have a, a pretty valid frustration about not being represented in the media. I think often then the blame gets placed on you know, quote unquote, the left or quote unquote, the mainstream media, when in fact, a lot of the reason why people don't feel represented in media is because of this consolidation that has rooted out a lot of local voices and a lot of diverse voices across the country. And so I think you have this sort of, you know, the flip side of the same coin that has allowed a company like Salem to get massive is the reason why a lot of people across the country from various backgrounds and from various places do not feel represented in the media. And so I think having that understanding as a Midwesterner and hearing from folks who, for whom this type of media, this type of talk radio has been very important in their life, just sort of made clear to me that this is there's a reason why this exists. A lot of it is economic, a lot of it is structural, but also they're appealing to what are in some instances quite valid frustrations. On the Media is a show that works to combat talking points and, and really help its audience understand the message that's being shared at its core. Um, what do you hope is the message that people walk away from the divided dial with? One of the key things that I want people to take away from the divided dial is the understanding that this type of talk radio doesn't dominate just because of listener preference. In the third and the fourth episodes, we do a lot of exploration of the history of um, both the right and the left's presence on talk radio. Radio was once a place that very diverse perspectives sort of thrived, that due to some strategic organizing on the right and the religious right, as well as this widespread deregulation, starting with Reagan and continuing on into the 90s, really sort of with the pinnacle, uh, with its pinnacle uh, with Clinton and the 96 Telecom Act, uh, all of these sort of political and economic decisions have allowed one perspective to dominate on the radio. Certainly there's an audience for it, but there's also an audience for other perspectives on the radio. But with the sort of political strategizing behind uh, the radio dial and the economic deregulation at the sort of federal level, there has not been much space made for a variety of perspectives. We go into why, why that is sort of in the series. But consolidation and strategic political organizing allowed the right to dominate on talk radio. Yes, there's a market for it, but it is not 
it, it does not dominate strictly because that's what people want to listen to. It's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. Um, and I think that a lot of people would like to have more varied perspectives on the airwaves, but don't necessarily have the option. Something that comes up a little bit less explicitly in this series, but that I hope is a key takeaway, is just how important it is to have local and diverse representation in media. We were sort of just talking about this, so I don't, you know, I don't want to hit this over the head too much. But consolidation has meant the loss of a lot of local voices on in, in media, in radio, in newspaper. And without those local voices, people aren't going to see themselves reflected in national media. And it will end up sort of, and, and it has end up, ended up feeding a lot of division. Um, so I really hope that one of the takeaways is, is that people want to both create and also want to support local media outlets. Katie Thornton is an independent journalist and host of The Divided Dial. You can hear every episode in the On The Media feed. Katie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your storytelling and I appreciate the work that you've done. It's really important. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's so great to talk with you. And I'm really happy to be on your station because I love Fayetteville and I love Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Film and television makes us feel things. And I don't just mean that as an idiom. There's data to back that up. Walter Hickey is the author of the book, You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything. His day job is thinking about the intersection of data and pop culture. And he says he hopes that his journalism and research can lend credence to pop culture reporting, which some may view as unimportant. I think that the perception is wrong. I think that the the biggest thing in my career that I've kind of realized increasingly is that uh, pop culture has a fundamental effect on people. Uh, it is scientifically measurable. It is uh, economically perceptible. It is, you, you can see it in many different kinds of ways. And I think that any time that it gets dismissed, I, I don't really think that that is coming from a place of knowledge or sincerity. I am a data journalist by trade. And so the cool thing that I like about data journalism is that I think for all kinds of reporting, data journalism can help uh, really illuminate and, and and kind of bring forward evidence that might convince someone who's skeptical. I think that the media is understandably at times seen as less trustworthy than they maybe have been in other times throughout history. And the good thing about data journalism is that data can reach folks who come in with a point of skepticism and by laying the groundwork with data and, and, and as objective as one can get information, uh, can you can c convince someone uh, that, to, that you're worth listening to and that you're worth hearing out.
Your book is broken down into different ways that culture impacts humans, from how it affects our bodies physiologically, how it reflects the way we interact with one another, to how it fuels our economy. Let's start by talking about this was something that really kind of interested me in this kind of opening part of your book, the galvanic skin response measurement. <laughs> what is that? How does it work? And what can it tell us? Yeah, so uh, all, bi- all all animals, many plants, other you know, any biological organism, deals with electricity in in some way, shape, or form. And bioelectricity is this really fun topic of biology that people have been studying for you know decades. There's some really fascinating research going as far back as the 1800s about how electricity interacts with biological systems. GSR is very simple, which is that when you feel emotionally intense, uh, when your fight or flight reflex is, is, is encouraged, when you feel strong emotional volatility, when you feel very strongly about something happening in front of you, as a evolutionary precaution, because we are mammals, one way that your body reacts is that the sweat on your palms, on these little tiny, tiny pores that you'd never see, gets a little bit more intense. Uh, that is a, you know, that is just because we are mammals, that is what we do. And galvanic skin response is is a really fun way to kind of gauge that intensity because what it does is it basically you would append two different uh, electrodes onto your body and run a small current basically between them. And, you know, typically your body, your skin's not perfectly conductive, so you'll lose some of that electricity between one and the other. But when you're when you have that emotional reaction and you have a little bit more sweat in your palm, more of that electricity gets through. And so we're able to kind of track your emotional valence over time using that galvanic skin response. And the best way that people might know about this is that is one of the tests in a polygraph test. So in addition to, you know, your, your, uh, your pulse and other different factors that they're measuring, they're measuring your, your GSR. And from a scientific perspective, we can use this to to kind of get insights into the actual latent feelings of what people are going through when they watch a movie. And so, you know, very basically just built a bunch of these devices, sent them to a few friends, uh, made a list of movies that I'd like them to watch if they get a a chance and, and, uh, and then just was able to kind of figure out the underlying emotional structure of some of these films using this technology. And uh, it was one of my favorite things to do just because the whole point of that chapter is that movies aren't just visual experiences. They're not just audio experiences. They are things that your body interacts with fundamentally, whether that's what's the chemical reactions going inside of you, whether that's your nervous system deliberately or not. These are things that are engaging your entire bodily structure. And that makes them cool. That makes them interesting. That makes them the things that we already have things that, that change your body's reaction. And we call them pharmaceuticals and we take them very seriously. And so as a result, I think that, you know, one fun thing about that experiment was just kind of illustrating how important some of the stuff is and how much it actually changes, uh, you know, how your body reacts to things. One of the things that really interests me about your research is is the interaction with kids and media. And you, you spend some time talking about kids and their viewing habits. What were some of the biggest surprises for you when it comes to how kids consume media? Yeah, uh, this was such a fun section to write about just because there's been a lot of research into how different kids at different ages consume and interact with media. And I, it, one of my favorite parts of it was that I got a chance to talk to the people who actually make it. I talked to folks who work in kids TV, whether they're directors, producers, or, or any other kind of position. 
And so, like, I guess, like, the one surprising thing that, that I'll hit first is that between, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how old you are, but, you know, we seem to be very similar ages. And the difference between how much thought went into kids TV when we were kids, when you know, potentially, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And the amount of thought that goes in today is is night and day. You had an entire generation kind of grow up in that Fred Rogers ecosystem, in that PBS ecosystem, and they realized how much power they had to actually help kids, you know, perceive and understand their world through media. And so there's so much thought that goes into kids TV right now, um, particularly the stuff that you'll see from from the networks and, and, and from more established figures. And I think like the thing that I learned the most about it was just, you know, that understanding media and understanding visual language is not an innate thing. It's a thing that we kind of pick up. We learn things about how we watch things by watching them. Uh, so a young kid might watch a show and just kind of look all over the screen because they're trying to take everything in. Whereas a slightly older kid, well, okay, I know that I'm supposed to be looking at the person who's talking or, oh, I'm supposed to be looking at the person that's gesturing in this direction or that direction. Uh, one of my favorite things was um, I was talking to folks who worked on Daniel Tiger and they told me some interesting things about just how time works in Daniel Tiger, which is that they never do a, like a cut and then there's a clock on the wall and it advances a little while and then they do a, a cut back to and it's dark out, right? Now you and I would understand that means that, oh, a couple hours have elapsed and now it's the same place, but it's nighttime. And they were just like, that's that's an idiom. Kids don't understand that. They, 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 there's no inherent understanding that, oh, I'm going to look at a clock, it's going to turn and then we're going to go back and it's nighttime. So all episodes of Daniel Tiger, they explained to me, basically take place in real time, that they take place over the course of 20 minutes of this kid's life. And if there are changes, you know, they're separated by a song or they're separated by uh, like, like a break and that kind of thing. So that because kids just kind of lack the ability to understand the intuitive shifting of time when they're watching something like this. So I, it's just like, you know, understanding temporal reasoning of five-year-olds is a thing that is happening now that maybe wasn't happening when, when, when we were growing up. In the commerce section of your book, you take a detailed look at the impact of intellectual property within the film and TV industry. There's there's merchandising through collectible items like Funko Pop figurines, and there's you know this whole world now that involves spinoff series and sequels and prequels and reboots, and it's a mentality that we're seeing a lot from Disney. Uh, as you consider the data points around intellectual property, what sticks out to you the most about the current trends in that world? Yeah, it's such a good question. So the chapter kind of traces, the, that, that chapter in particular traces the intersection of commerce and pop culture, uh, which has always been the case. It, it has been rather rare that people, you know, make mass media consumption elements for you know the just merely the act of doing it there's always you know the, the the fact that this is the industry that it is 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 a reflection of how much people care about it and it, how much it really means to a lot of folks and as it kind of pertains to our current era one of my favorite stories was kind of telling how we got here when it came to just how big merchandise around pop culture is. It was, you know, a niche in the 60s and then it had kind of grown, but it was only for kids. And then you see this real revolution in the 90s that I dive into that all of a sudden pop culture merchandise that had traditionally only been for children all of a sudden starts selling to adults and selling to people who had not been a market there before. And then once that Pandora's box is open, all of a sudden you're looking at you know what would have just been a movie that came out is now a movie that then has a clothing line that then has a leg crew set accompanying uh line that you where you can pick the ravenclaw set versus the slytherin 
that and you know basically diving into interlocking one's own identity with what pop culture speaks to them it's kind of taking what had been the sports way of following uh media where i am a new york giants fan and so i will own their their memorabilia and i will i'll see a patriots guy across the screen and yeah i beat you and then i'll see an eagles guy across the street and that i don't like him and it it, it takes that and brings it to media and it makes it into a tribalistic setting and not just something that one enjoys for for its own sake um i think that that's the biggest thing that's going on now and where it become such an integral part of people's identities for better and for worse and i do mean for better because again seeing yourself on screen can really mean something and seeing representation of a of a life that you haven't chosen yet on screen could make you choose the life and there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of people immersing their identity into pop culture but there's a lot of other stuff and and i think that uh understanding how that influences people and what that means for for us as a society is uh is a question that i that i get out of the book but i we're still finding out the answers every day man <laughs> the setup for this is there's a user on tiktok who has a series of videos where she plays rap and hip-hop songs from the early 2000s and uh, the example in this video is a T-Pain song and uh, the text box on the video uh, she's she's got headphones on she's up close to a microphone and the text box on the video says NPR in the year 2109 that was the chart shattering I'm in love with a stripper by the artist <laughs> T-Pain in the key of A flat major. A love ballad that takes us on an emotional journey with a man who is both fascinated and quite titillated by a dancer he meets <laughs> at a strippy, as some call it. As we think about 2109, in an era where we are creating more cultural content than ever before, how do you imagine we will look back on culture and say 2109? It's a really pertinent question. And what I liked about reporting the book was that I tried to take a little bit of a historical view. You know, when you're doing a book, I, I'm an internet writer first and foremost. I've This is my first dead tree thing ever. I'm, I'm very happy with it. But it presented challenges for me just because I'm very accustomed to coming up with an idea and being able to publish it within a week or two, if that's what schedules demand. So where this was a project that, you know, from conception to publication, you're talking four years. And so I tried to make it as durable as possible when I was writing it. And I, I, I oftentimes retreated into historical analysis for that purpose. One thing that I really liked about this book was that, you know, you can look at various different eras of history and see reverberations and echoes of what's going on today. You know, if you looked at the silent film era, a lot of times film is considered is always like now we look back, it's like, oh, film is a medium. Film is a, a way of expressing yourself. Film is a, is, a, is a distribution mechanism. But like back then, film was a technology. It was a new technology. It was the intersection of several new technologies from the development of, of you know, celluloid, from the development of, of you know, lighting, from the development of photography and, and different kinds of fast photography. And you know, at that point, it was kind of a gadget. And so if you look at the earliest films, they're like, let's see what this thing can do. And a lot, you know, then they're like, oh, well, we can actually, you know, make it pan, we can make it zoom, we can do this, and we can film this happening, we can be have direction involved, we can have cuts, we can do and you can kind of watch the medium develop between the 1890s and, and the 1930s and the industry develop around it. And you can see people trying new things. And you can also see echoes of that today, which is like, you know, you see, YouTube emerges as a, as a as a medium. You can see podcasts emerge as a medium. And if you look back to early film, it's like, okay, what are the first things that people do with these mediums? Well, first they try to scare each other. 
Uh, they try to make spooky things and they try to use this medium to, to, to get a good scare out of things, right? Uh, what they do pranks, they do, uh, you know, stunts that you have Buster Keaton and you have Jake Paul and they're kind of doing very similar stuff. You look at basically people just take this thing for a ride until eventually it develops as, as, as a mature technology. And so I think that, you know, when, when you're looking at the, the, the user made culture that we have today or even the independently made culture that we have today, I like that you're seeing, much as we saw with the onset of early film, new genres emerge. Uh, one thing that I've been citing, because uh, I've had a few conversations with folks in digital culture, is, you know, it wasn't until digital culture and digital distribution mechanisms that we had things like Dungeons and Dragons actual plays become a not only a viable medium, but like sellout crowds. And that took the intersection of a distribution mechanism, a niche audience, and then time to kind of develop into what it is. But that would have never happened through traditional media. You needed this kind of new distribution mechanism to accomplish it. And so like we're going to see, I think, new genres form, new style of storytelling form. And it's going to be exciting and it's going to be spooky and scary at times, but it's, it's going to be fun. And then you're also kind of going to see genres go in and out of fashion. Like, you know, superheroes have have kind of come, really arrived. I don't think that they're going anywhere for a while, but I think that you're seeing them mature as a genre in sim similar ways that the Western genre did. And so uh, I, I'm very intrigued by what kind of happens. And, and as we kind of try to, you know, put our finger on the pulse of what's going on, it's just like, you know, all of this has happened before, it'll happen again. And uh, we, we all kind of get to play our part and we, and we get our thing and it, it's, it's going to be kind of fun to go for the ride. This is an extremely expansive book. You've covered so much, and it's really just like a, a delightful read. It's a very colorful read, um, and I, I really appreciated that. Uh, as I started to dig into it, I almost felt daunted by how much there was, and as I started to read through it, I'm just like, this is data journalism meets pop culture meets just like a joy to look through. That means so much. That's what I was going for. And that just means so, that's just such a like affirmation for me to hear. So thank you. Thank you for, for saying so. It, it was a it was an exciting project. It was a challenging project. I had so much fun writing it. I hope that that comes out in the book. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. This is a real delight. <laughs> Walter Hickey is the author of You Are What You Watch. We spoke over Zoom back in 2023. Arkansas and Oklahoma are first and second, respectively, when it comes to drone commerce readiness. That's according to a 2023 report from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Brent Scorup is a senior researcher there, and he says there's six factors they use to determine these rankings, but the idea of this annual report is to get state and local aviation leaders interested in drones. Get them thinking about how do we bring jobs and drone commerce to our state, and as you mentioned, Arkansas and Oklahoma stand at the, at the top of the heap. So in the future, I anticipate and others anticipate drones will not be able to fly just uh, you know, wherever is uh, most convenient. They'll have to abide by local property laws and nuisance laws and you know, avoid, of course, airports, but also perhaps like prisons and schoolyards and other things. So one proposal is to use the rights of way, the public rights of way above roadways. And so state state laws that recognize uh, the ability of, of state officials to lease air rights above rights of way is one issue. Another law we, we look at in the report is, is there an avigation easement, which is a, a lawyer's way of saying, if you have an av avigation easement in state law, you can fly so long as you're not bothering people on the ground. Some states codify that, about half the states codify that. Another is 
does the state have a drone task force or a drone program office at the state level? Both Oklahoma and, and Arkansas have that. Yeah, Arkansas is uh, the Future Mobility Council was created by the governor last year, I believe, and Oklahoma has uh, something similar. Next is, is there a drone sandbox? And a sandbox here means, is there designated state facilities and airspace for drone companies and other aviation companies to come test experimental aircraft and drones? And the final law we look at is, does the state expressly protect the property rights of landowners? This is an important issue. There's a lot of gray area here. And so states that do that get scores. And, and then the final issue is number of drone jobs in a state. And we, we account for state population within that. You know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is something like Walmart, right? Walmart has looked into doing some of this drone delivery systems. Is there anything kind of unique about these two states that kind of sets them apart from the rest? Yeah, I, I've heard anecdotally from people, uh, folks in Arkansas, Walmart has has led you know some of these discussions, creating this future mobility council, which includes not just drones, but also autonomous vehicles. And, and Walmart, my, I understand, has, has led a lot of that. Uh, another u- unique thing about these two states, Governors Hutchinson and Stitt last year reached a memor- re- memorandum of understanding to work together on emerging technology issues, including drones, and, and they have plans to create a drone corridor, a 100-mile drone corridor that connects the two states, but also electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. And I, I thought that was a remarkable um, agreement between those those governors uh, that I hope other states will, will recommend. It's not expressly scored in our report. It seems easy to look at something like drones, like we would look at, you know, hoverboards in the past or whatever the like zeitgeist gadget is and kind of not think very seriously of them. But do you see drones as being like a critical part of the future economy? Yeah, there's there's been, I would say, and in, in many in the aviation space, you know, believe we're in the third major era of aviation. You, you had the Wright brothers, you had the jet age in the 60s, and now we're in the age of electrification and autonomy. And you can just do a lot more amazing things with electrification and autonomy that you just couldn't do in prior generations. So I'm I'm optimistic about this. I'm I'm looking out over my office right now in outside DC. Low altitude airspace where drones fly is almost totally empty. I mean, it's just it's a vast public resource that for the first time we can actually use. And you know, I, I think some promising sectors include ag uses, linear inspections like pipelines and utilities, uh, medical logistics between hospital campuses and, and so on. Yeah, a lot of people talk about home delivery. That'll be part of it, but I, I, I think, I think sooner in the more economically significant areas will be ag, linear inspections, and and medical logistics. To me, it almost sounds like more rural states like Arkansas and Oklahoma could find a lot of advantage from these sorts of services because, you know, you're dealing with very rural places where there's not a high population, but, you know, a farmer's got a couple thousand acres and he needs to go check it. And it's it's pretty cumbersome to do that in a tractor or to do that in a pickup truck. But if you can do that in a drone, it's a lot simpler, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And you see that resembled somewhat in the report card. I mean, this wasn't intended, but uh, it tends to be uh, more more rural states that are leading in, in some of these factors. Um, I, I think North Dakota is right behind Oklahoma and Arkansas. And I think it is, you know, due to some of these industries, inspections, ag and so on. Uh, but also just the the pragmatic reality that federal aviation officials, they're gonna encourage these things in rural areas first, where there's less risk uh, and less liability than than, you know, Manhattan 
or, or DC. Um, so I, yeah, I think for those two reasons, you you, you will see uh, rural areas and rural states be at the cutting edge of these things. Uh, a decade from now, do you anticipate these rankings looking a lot different than they do currently? There, there's been some turnover. I, I should say, and, and sometimes I'm asked in interviews, you know, who who are the worst states? And I, I don't reveal that. We're not trying to shame low-ranking states. We're trying to raise the game of all states and point to states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, and North Dakota and say, hey, there's some good ideas here that you, you should try mimicking. And so what, what I would expect to see and what we've seen in the four years I've, I've done this report is states are upping their game. They are taking best practices from other states. You know, Arkansas, what was in the top three last year? They, they leapt to number one this year. What, what I expect to see and you are seeing is all states raise their game and, uh, you know, I hope in time drone companies and emerging aviation companies will have many options to choose from if, if they want a forward thinking uh, state uh, framework to, to work under. Brent Scorup is a senior researcher at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jack Travis. KUAF's general manager is Lee Wood. Today's show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, be well.